Now, if you've got God's Word with you, if you will turn to Isaiah chapter 31. Isaiah chapter 31. Isaiah, the Lord's prophet, speaking here in Isaiah 31, says this, beginning in verse 1, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God. And their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. For thus, says the, the, for thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out, out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and its hill. Like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Turn to Him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sent made, which your hands have sinfully made for you. And the Assyrians shall fall by a sword not of man, and a sword not of man shall devour him. And he shall flee from the sword. And his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror. And his officers Desert, uh, desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. In order to purify gold, it has to pass through the fire. Going through this melting process, melting the ore, if you will, provides a means for separating the gold from the impurities or the other elements that are mixed in with gold. The process also serves as a mean for, of testing the gold to see how, how, what carrot it is or see how pure the gold is. As believers in Christ, we also go through trials and tribulation. James reminds us that the trying of our faith worketh patience and patience has its perfect work. And so our faith also at times is tested so that we can be refined and purified in the sight of the Lord. That fire comes in many different shapes and many different forms. In this particular passage, 
Israel's testing was going to come in the threat of war. That threat of war was going to serve to test their faith, revealing their true character. Much of this section is interspersed with messages of judgment, but also messages with hope. The messages of judgment always begin with the word woe. Notice chapter 31, verse 1. He says, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. Woe is a word that, that it describes an intense outburst of grief or indignation or alarm. It describes a condition of deep suffering from misfortune, affliction or grief or ruinous trouble. When the prophets used this kind of message, uh, it was usually accompanied by an accusation or a threat of judgment if God's people didn't act immediately. The focus of the woes in this section found in chapters 30 through about 32, the focus of these woes is the self-confident people of Judah. They were placing their trust in themselves and in earthly kings. In this particular case, in Isaiah 31, it's the king of Egypt. Isaiah warned Jerusalem's leaders to realize their sense of safety. They thought they were going to be fine. They, they had this sense that Assyria would never attack them, that Egypt would come to their help. Isaiah is confronting these leaders and telling them, if you don't turn back to the Lord, you are going to be in trouble. You are going to experience disaster. Their failure to trust in the Lord would simply result in defeat and humiliation. Only in repentance and faith would they be saved. Only by trusting in the one true God, the one who is all-powerful, only then would they experience success. In Isaiah 30, 1 through 5, the prophet had denounced Judah for turning to Egypt to save them from the invading Assyrians. Here he warns them a second time about going to Egypt for help. By going to Egypt for help, God's people were rebelling against the Lord their God. And it focused and it and it shows up as a lack of trust in the Lord. Judean leaders not only called into question God, the power of God, but also his wisdom at being able to help them. What they did was an offensive to God. It's a wonder God didn't just completely wipe them off the map. You know, God has the power to do that. He did it to Sodom and Gomorrah, didn't He? He had the power to do that, but God's love for His people is great. We need to remember that. And we're going to learn more about that as we go through this particular passage. Uh, they needed to do what Psalm 27 outlined. Psalm 27 says, Some trust in chariots, and some 
in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Isaiah reminded God's people that he was the Lord's messenger. He was not speaking his own words. He was speaking on behalf of the Lord. And if they did not listen, they would experience destruction. On the basis of God's promised deliverance, Isaiah challenged the people of God to repent and turn back to the Lord. If they would do that, God would defeat the Assyrians. And they wouldn't have anything to worry about. But Judah thought it needed horses and chariots. And so they refused to turn to the Lord. So what are some of the things that we learn in this passage of Scripture? Well, in verse 1, we learn that our help comes from the Lord. Look at verse 1. It says, some trust in chariots. Well, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they're many. And the horsemen, because they're very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel. Guys, our trust and our help comes from the Lord who made heavens and earth. Does it occur to you, why in the world would God's people ever go to Egypt for help? Don't you remember what Egypt did to them? They held them in bondage for over 400 years. They were in slavery to Egypt. Why in the world would they ever think about going back to Egypt? What did they see in Egypt? Well, they saw an impressive military force made of a multitude of chariots and horses. If you go and you look at Israel, their army was primarily made up of foot soldiers, of infantrymen. They didn't have chariots and horses. And God had specifically instructed them in Deuteronomy 17, 16 that they should not acquire horses from Egypt. God's people should have known that trusting in Egypt was a foolish mistake. Do you not think Egypt would have enslaved them all over again if they'd have had half a chance to be able to do that? I don't understand why the, the leadership of Israel couldn't understand that and couldn't see it. But they chose to put their trust in what they could see, not in the unseen hands of God. The Judean leaders relied more on what they saw in Egypt than what they heard from the Lord's prophet. The Lord was their true protector. The Lord was the one who would take care of them, that would meet them at their point of need. But they refused to trust. Now let me ask you a question. What about us? Do we trust the Lord? I'm afraid sometimes we put our trust in things, our possessions, our own wisdom. We think sometimes we know better than God. Uh, sometimes we think, you know, well, if I get in trouble, I'll call on God. But in the meantime, I'm going to take care of things the way I want to. When God wants us to put our faith and trust in Him. Why do you think it's so tempting to look at other things rather than putting our trust in God? Why do you think? You can talk. I always like people to talk back to me when I'm preaching. So That's it. We see things. We can't see God. What are some other reasons? 
Requires us to do something. Yeah, could be. Uh, requires us not to, not to trust in our own abilities, but to trust in God's abilities. That's another one, isn't it? Exactly, Janice. You got it. Sometimes it's just pride. You're exactly right. We want to do things our own way, our own self, and we don't want to put our trust in God. So think about that as we go through the rest of this. God calls on us to put our trust in Him at all times. We must trust God. The second verses 2 and 3 tell us that we ought to trust God to help us in difficult times. Look what he says. Uh, And yet he, speaking of God, is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out His hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall. In other words, Isaiah is saying that Israel, who is trusting in Egypt, not only was Egypt going to fall, but Israel also is going to fall because their trust is not in the, their true protector in the God of heaven and earth. Unlike the leaders of Judah who had treacherously disobeyed the Lord by going to Egypt for help, uh, And unlike the Egyptians who could only be dependent upon to look out for their own self-interest, the Lord does not go back on what He says. Whatever the Lord speaks, that's exactly what happens. Because God, when He speaks something, He speaks truth. And God also has the power to accomplish what He says He's going to do. There. Judah's attempt to get help from Egypt would would ultimately backfire on them. Man is frail, temporal, and mortal. The Lord is the creator of heavens and earth. He is the eternal God. He is holy. He is awesome in power. He is omnipotent. That means God is all-powerful. There's nobody more powerful than God. God never enters a battle that he doesn't win. Think about that for just a minute. God never enters a battle that he doesn't win. He is all powerful. In verses 4 through 5, it tells us that God will fight for us and protect us. Look what he says in verse 4. For thus says the Lord... Or thus said, for thus the Lord said to me. In other words, Isaiah is saying that God has said this to me: as a young, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against them, he's not terrified by their shouting or dawning at the noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill, like birds hovering. So the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem, and He will protect and deliver it. And he will spare and rescue it. A lion growls for a number of different reasons. But one reason why a lion would growl would be to say to others, other animals that were around them, stay away or you'll regret it. 
And so God is pictured here as a lion who is roaring over its prey, saying, stay away or you'll regret it. The word shepherds in the Old Testament often referred to kings. And so Isaiah was saying that when the king of Assyria and the kings of the vassal nations come against Mount Zion, they will be unable to intimidate the Lord because he fights for Jerusalem. As a young lion fights for its prey, the Lord was prepared prepared to fight against those who were coming against Jerusalem. Over and over again, guys, we see God protecting His people. Now, God eventually brought judgment against them because they refused to repent and turn to Him. But in this instance, God was literally going to fight against those who were coming against His people. We have this picture of God being like a hovering bird over His people. That's a picture of His protection and His love and His concern, His tender care for His people. The Lord will protect and deliver. He will spare and rescue Guys, the Lord protects His children. And God, you know the interesting thing about this to me is that God decides to protect His people even though they refuse to put their trust in Him. You ever think about that? God called them to return back to Him, which is where their trust should have been. But no matter what they did, God was going to protect His people. What do you think the significance of God's unwavering faithfulness to us and to His church really means? What's the significance of it? What's the significance of God's faithfulness to us and His church? What do you think? You're a quiet bunch tonight. Yeah. You know, God loves us even sometimes when we're unlovable and unlovely. Isn't that right? God, God loves us and cares for us even sometimes when we don't turn to Him and ask for His help. I like what uh, Timothy says. Even when you and I become faithless, God remains faithful. God loves us with an unending love. What does that mean to his church? I've heard so much lately about the demise of the church and what's coming against the church. You realize that when people start saying they're coming against the church, they're coming against the Lord of heaven. The church is his bride. And while you and I individually may experience difficulties and while individual churches may experience difficulties, The Bible says the Lord is preparing His bride for His second coming. Do you think that God is going to let somebody destroy His church? God said even the gates of hell can't prevail against the church. You and I need to understand that God is faithful to us, even at times when we're not faithful like God's people were back in ancient times. So let me ask you a question. Has there ever been a time that you've been unfaithful to God, but He has continued to be faithful to you? 
or maybe I should say how many times, maybe just more than one time, but I was just wanted you to think about maybe one time when you've been unfaithful and yet God still fulfilled his promises to you. He still protected you. Guys, we have an awesome God. And he loves us with an unending love. He wants to be our protection and our shield if we will simply trust him. But sometimes even when we can't get enough faith to even trust the Lord in certain issues, guys, God is still faithful. He's not going anywhere. He still loves us. He still hovers over us like a bird hovers over her young. In verses 6 and 7, we're told that we need to repent and turn back to God. Look what it says in verse 6 and 7. Turn to Him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day, everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. And the Assyrian shall fall by a sword, not of man. A sword, not of man, shall devour him, and he shall flee from the sword, and his young man shall be put to forced labor. Uh, The people of Judah, God's people, were at a moment of decision. There's a, I can't remember if it's in Deuteronomy, or not exactly sure which book it's in, but there's a place called the Valley of Decision. These guys were in the Valley of Decision. Uh, one of Miss Evelyn's sister's favorite verses they told me the other day was, you know, choose you this day whom you shall serve. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Uh, Elijah, when he confronted the prophets of Baal, he says, if, God, if the Lord is God, serve him. If Baal is God, serve him. There's a, a chance and an opportunity for us to decide. And it's not a one and done kind of decision, is it? Every day we have to encourage our heart to turn to the Lord. There's going to be on that great day of the Lord when He comes in the future, people are going to cast away their idols and they're going to realize that these idols cannot save them, that there's no life or breath in them, there's no power in them. So the people are going to throw away their idols because they'll understand that the Lord alone has the power to help. Isaiah's urgent message to these people was they needed to repent while they still had an opportunity because if they did not repent then the destruction was going to come not only on Egypt, but the destruction was also going to come on God's people. What do you, in what ways do you think that message from God's prophet is still relevant for us today? In what ways do you think God's message is still relevant for the church today? Do you think it's relevant for today? Do you think we need to repent and turn back to the Lord? He doesn't, does he, Larry? That's exactly right. Think about how on fire for the Lord you were when you first got saved. Are you still on fire for the Lord? If you're not, God hadn't gone anywhere. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So who's moved? It's not God. 
In this world today, we are encouraged to put our trust in things. We're encouraged to put our trust in our own wisdom. We're encouraged to put our trust in the things that are seen. And God continually tells us, trust me. Don't trust in horses. Don't trust in chariots. Trust in the name of the Lord, your God. In verses 8 and 9, it tells us exactly what God promised was going to happen. And this is so, so exciting when you think about this. It says in verse 8, Assyrian shall fall by a sword not of man. A sword not of man shall devour him, and he shall flee from the sword. And his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror, and his officers desert the standard in panic. Declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion. That's a permanent thing. It's not a, a temporary thing, is it? God's fire is in Zion all the time. And whose furnace is in Jerusalem with his people. That's what he's saying. God is with his people. That's what the prophet's trying to tell us. In 701 B.C., King Sennacherib of Assyria invaded Judah and captured all of its cities except for Jerusalem. Now, if you want to write these verses down, I'm not going to take the time to go uh, look at them, but 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19, 2 Chronicles chapter 32, and Isaiah 37 all tell us what happened when Sennacherib laid siege on Jerusalem. In the middle of the night, the angel of the Lord, the angel, a angel, one angel, killed 185,000 Assyrians in the middle of the night. Causing Sennacherib, who is probably the rock referred to here in verse 9, to return home in fear to Nineveh. He returned home in fear and disgrace. His men abandoned the battlefield. They just all left. I mean, how can you fight against God that you can't see? An angel of the Lord that came out and kills 185,000 people and you don't see anything. You just see 185,000 people no longer in existence. What would you have done? I'd be like that guy that, there's a, I think there was a, I don't know if it's a Laurel and Hardy movie or if it was a, I think it may have been a little Rascals movie that I saw when I was a little kid. And uh, this guy thought he saw a ghost and he's running alongside a train. And he says, feet don't fail me now. That's exactly what I'd been doing. I'd be saying, feet don't fail me now because I'd been out of there in a heartbeat. Because you can't fight against somebody you can't see, right? King Sennacherib returned to Nineveh in fear and disgrace. The rock who had provided shelter and protector of all these people of Assyria went home a defeated foe and Israel never shot the first arrow. God acted powerfully to protect the city. When the Lord raised His banner, the Assyrians who survived ran for their lives. They scattered, as it says here. They scattered in panic. They left the standard of their army in panic. Sennacherib, when he got back home, his sons conspired against him and killed him. And by the end of 605, that occurred. Uh, the fall of Nineveh occurred in 612 and by the by 605 B.C., Assyria was no more. 
God completely, in seven years, completely wiped Assyria out of existence. Whatever the Lord declares to happen, will happen. He is the all-powerful God. What does that communicate to us today? What does that, what does that say about the people that God loves today? Who are the people that God loves? The church. It's Christians. It's us. What does that say to us? You know, sometimes I think we hide in fear from the things that are going on in the world. We stick our head in the sand and we hide inside our church doors because we're fearful. Guys, Jesus has promised to protect His church. He is preparing that church as a bride and He's coming back to get the church. The church is the only institution ever mentioned in Scripture that we know for a fact will be here when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. We ought not be trusting in our own strength. We ought not be trusting in horses and chariots. We ought to be trusting in the Lord. Let me just quickly sum this up. This passage tells us a couple of things, three things that I've I've mentioned. Trusting in human strength rather than God's power will ultimately lead to defeat, not victory. Secondly, God remains faithful, sometimes even when we're not faithful to Him. Thirdly, trusting God will ultimately lead to victory. As I said before, God never enters a battle He will not win. And the Bible tells us that God loves us with an everlasting love. What do you think that means for us? Will God not protect us? Will God not come alongside us? You know, Satan and his worldly system is opposed to the church. Well, Satan and the worldly system is opposed to Jesus and everything that Jesus loves. And one of the things that Jesus loves is the church, which means... He's opposed, those things are opposed to us. But you know what the scripture says? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That's exciting, guys. We need to trust in the Lord in your battles. Trust in God alone. Don't trust in your own strength. Don't trust in human wisdom. Don't trust in what the doctors say. Trust in the Lord. And ultimately, the victory will be ours. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to die. All of us are going to die. 100% of us are going to die one of these days unless Jesus comes back. Hate to burst your bubble. There's no fountain of youth out there that's going to keep you alive forever. Let me just encourage you. Trust in the Lord alone. Cry out to Him on a daily basis and ask for His help. No matter what you face, no matter what battle you're going into, just cry out to the Lord. And trust in Him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.